I'm Dr. Lara Devgan. I'm a plastic surgeon in New York City, the CEO of Scientific Beauty, and of course, a major beauty enthusiast. You are listening to Beauty Bosses, where we chat with fellow industry leaders who are shaping beauty, fashion, wellness, and all things pretty. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the amazing episode nine of Beauty Bosses. I'm here today with Sarah Hoover. Thanks for being here. Delighted to be here. As you guys probably all know, Sarah has made an incredible name for herself in the arts world. Um, Sarah is a an important team member at Gagosian Gallery, and she's an artist liaison, an art expert, and an art dealer for some of the most important living artists of our time. So it's so amazing to have you. Thank you for having me. It's such a treat Yay. to get to girl talk about beauty. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and art is kind of the ultimate high form of beauty. So I wanted to ask you just to start to tell us a little bit about what you do in your day-to-day life. So I have a, a really dynamic um, tasks that I have to take on at the gallery every day because I manage artists that are living so I do kind of everything for them. Um, I help organize travel, I promote their work to different museums, I sell their work to clients, I help them produce and fabricate their work so it could be you know my day-to-day tasks could be anything from visiting a fabricator or you know like a facility that pours bronzes or um, helps them make their work to being in the studio with them planning for future exhibitions, to visiting museums and talking about their work to people, um, and helping them plan exhibitions for the future. And some days I'm in the gallery all day just like answering emails and doing correspondence. It's really all over the place. I'm not all of the artists that I work with live in New York, so sometimes I get to travel to do that kind of stuff with them on site, which is really fun. That's amazing, and um, you travel so much for your work, which yeah. is really cool. The other thing that I think that's so interesting about your career is that You started out when you were a grad student at Columbia, kind of as a newbie at at an assistant level. And in the decades since then, you've become an integral part of the whole Gagosian empire, which is, you know, anyone, even people who don't know anything about art, know what the Gagosian gallery and what the name Gagosian means. Yeah, it's probably one of the only um, art galleries that I think you could consider its own brand. Um, that's sort of, I guess, a household name in in some households, even outside of the art world. But when I started at the gallery, I'd never been in the gallery before the day that I submitted my resume, which is strange because I studied art history when I was at NYU, but I studied, um, you know, art that had been made much earlier than the artists that we worked with at the gallery. I was particularly interested in very early 20th century art. So, I didn't study contemporary, I didn't go to galleries very often, I had been a little bit, and the world was so different then because we didn't have the internet. We had the internet, but we didn't have Instagram and It was the Twitter. proto yeah, internet. exactly. It was like the, Al- it was right when Al Gore was like first developing exactly. his Exactly. <laughs> Thanks to him, now we have what we have today, and so it was just a really different world, and Chelsea felt so far away, and I didn't spend a lot of time there. But, um... It is true that I started there as an assistant while I was still in grad school, and I never thought I'd stay for 10 years, but I think because what I do every day is so different, every day looks different, completely different from the day before it, it's like remained very interesting for me, and there's um, you know, always the this idea that next quarter or next year I could do something I've never done before, which happens, has happened over and over for 10 years, so I have no reason to leave. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I feel really lucky. Tell us a little bit about some of the most incredible, show-stopping, zillion-dollar pieces of art that you've ever sold. Um, well, it's always really exciting to sell a Coons um, because they're, you know, sort of emblematic of the high ends of the contemporary art market. Um, but they're also logistically really incredible um, the sculptures in particular to see how they're fabricated and put together and what it's like to install them in someone's home after they've been in the gallery setting which is usually quite different than a domestic setting for example I don't know if you're familiar with the inflatable series but it's a series of work by Jeff Koons that they look like they're inflatable pool toys but they're not there and they're so cool and yeah. whimsical they're amazing yeah. and they have every single detail of an inflatable pool toy such as the little area in the back that you blow into to blow it up and the you know do not choke constructions whatever and the way that they fit together is remarkable because some of them actually that that apparatus that you blow into twists and that's how the sculpture is sort of unlocked to come apart and then they've come in, they um, break into all these different pieces and each piece gets its own like beautifully fabricated crate that can basically be a sculpture in itself. So that's always really cool because of course these things that you sell, they have an afterlife and they go and live with someone in their home and you know their kids see them and they have this whole kind of effect on people's lives. Um, yeah, it so becomes cool. so personal, right? Exactly, yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that I love about my job is that um, you know, you get to know your clients and you visit their houses and you see how they live with these like very avant-garde objects and paintings that at least culturally for me growing up, I didn't see a lot of people who lived like that. And a lot of the art that I sell is, you know, uh, of course the form that it takes is beautiful and interesting, but it's also really conceptual and sometimes it makes you think and sometimes it makes you think about like things that are super political or, you know, sort of avant-garde and I, I love that I love that like someone six-year-old could grow up with a piece of art that they thought about one way when they were little that when they come home from college in their 20s they could read into an entirely different way and it's been a part of their life the whole time and it's so amazing just the concept of you know we're sort of at a time where people are in a nice way taking for granted the idea of living amongst beautiful objects and living in art um, so you spoke a little bit about growing up. I know you grew up in Indiana. That's right. And now you live in New York City. I sure do. And yeah. um, tell us a little bit about your transition. How did you end up moving to New York? And um, what would you say are some of the biggest differences and the biggest similarities about New York versus Indiana? Um, well, I moved to New York to go to NYU as an undergraduate. I moved here in 2002. And I always, for some reason, just you know, had it in my head that I wanted to move to New York when I was when I was old enough to do so. Um, the greatest difference, I think, is the level of diversity that you experience in a city like New York. It's amazing, It's right? incredible. Yeah. And I think it's so important because um, I was really privileged as a child and fortunate that my parents traveled with us. They were able to take us to see things that were different and people that looked different. But, of course, you can be really culturally conditioned by your surroundings, and I think when you're little, to only see people who look exactly like you, no matter what that, that looks like, um, breeds a sort of kind of inherent intolerance in people. And I just, it's, I have a new baby, as you know, and I think it's so special that he gets to grow up in a place where he will see all different kinds of cultures and all different kinds of people just by like walking out of our door. Yeah. And that really struck me. I remember the f when I first moved to New York to go to NYU, I remember going into... 
a bakery and hearing people in line in front of me ordering a croissant and they were speaking in French. And like, I didn't know anyone aside from my French teacher in high school who spoke in French in Indiana. Just, you know, there, there weren't, there weren't immigrants like that who had grown up in other places and spoke other languages as part of their daily life. And I remember thinking like, that is so cool, but you encounter 20 people a day in New York that speak other languages as their first language. And it's incredible, right? Yeah, it's and it's such a rich experience. And it sort of colors the way we all look at life, right? Totally. And it's so cool that you can, like any night of the week, eat Indian food or Moroccan food or, you know, just in every, in every possible way, it permeates the culture of the city. And I feel very lucky that we get to experience that every day. What are your thoughts on diversity in the art world? Because I know that one thing that I've spoken about with other modern artists and people who work in art is a little bit of the fact that even though New York is an amazing city where you can experience every culture under the sun in five minutes flat, um, sometimes in prominent galleries and museums, we see over-representation of certain groups and under-representation of other groups. And Absolutely. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, unfortunately, the patriarchy has um, infiltrated even the art world. And you're correct that most um, of the, you know, most of the artists that are most financially rewarded by the art, the contemporary art market are men, and they're usually white, and they're usually, you know, over the age of 30 or whatever the demographic is. I'm really proud because two of the four artists that I work with at the gallery are women. And oh, that's um, awesome. one of them is African American, um, the other is German American. So I, I, I'm glad that I'm able to help promote that because, um, you know, I would say since the 60s, there have been female artists who very, have very, been very vocal about the lack of representation, particularly for women and women of color in the art world. And it seems that in those 40 years, 50 years, not a lot has changed. I think what we've all experienced in the past um, you know, two years with the Me Too movement is a real sea change. And I hope that that makes its way into the art world as well and that we can continue to support um, voices that don't you know, just look like the voices we're used to, to hearing. Um, I'm really hopeful about that. I feel like now is the time for that change to really come about. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, so one thing that I wanted to chat with you about is the art world is very glamorous and there is a lot of glamour associated with it and um, a lot of fun parties and great events. For sure. For sure. But there's also a little bit of a less glamorous side to any industry. Mm -hmm. And I wanted you to tell us a little bit about the not glamorous parts about what you do. Well, at the end of the day, what I part of what I do in, in doing sales, at the end of the day, I feel it is a service that I provide. So, um, you know, like with any service industry, there are high maintenance clients and um, people what? who, yeah, it's, isn't it shocking? <laughs> people who want you to like, you know, bend the rules for them or um, make a sculpture that's 10 feet tall fit into a room that's 9 feet tall or, you know, things you, that kind wait, of Wait, why good. can't you do that? I'm not a magician. It's really unfortunate. I wish okay. that I was, but there are, you know, there's, there, of course, there's an element of that. And I think, um, especially in a world that's so luxurious where people have access to almost anything that they can buy. Um, you are confronted sometimes with people's unrealistic expectations of what you can provide them with. Um, so that can be difficult. 
also the um like putting together a museum show for an artist i think people don't understand that it can take years of kind of mind-numbing sort of academic i would you know kind of boring work to catalog things and find works and organize a show and that art world seemingly is so fast-paced you know there are auctions two different seasons it's like the fashion world like you're always gearing up for auction season or the next show and shows are only up for six weeks and it seems like everything moves at the speed of light particularly now that we all have access to everything on instagram and all of that but in reality things can be planned three or four years ahead of time and um, the attention to detail has to be really meticulous so it's not all you know parties and thinking about the new and what's next and innovating. right and everything has such a rich backstory mm-hmm. too it's not just the context that a piece of art is built into, but it's the whole historical context, the of story course, behind yeah. it, the origin, the creation, yeah. all of that stuff. And so, you know, it's more than just wine and cheese at a party. And cheese at a party. I know, right? unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, I wanted to ask you for a little bit of insight for people who are interested in collecting art. Yeah. Um, who maybe are not at the level where they're walking into the Gagosian gallery and sure. having their yeah. one-on-one meeting with you. But um, do you have three pieces of concrete advice for somebody who's thinking about acquiring a piece of artwork? Well, first of all, I think that you you should only buy things that you love, no matter who you are. You should buy things that you, know, you respect and you truly like aesthetically or conceptually whatever it means to you you have to buy things that you really like that's my number one rule that I would say to anyone you know there are are certainly people who know the art market very well and buy things sort of as an investment or try and play the market in a a more business-minded way and that's fine and there are people who are successful at that but I think ultimately even they would say you buy things that you love and that you respect and that you can agree are you know good works of art The second thing though is in order to have a sort of mental vocabulary where you can decide what you feel is good, you have to see everything. You have to have a really wide knowledge of what's out there so that you can decide what you like and what you don't like and how to rank things. And um, if you live in a city like New York, you're so lucky because there are 400 galleries in Chelsea and you know another 100 on the Lower East Side and galleries uptown and in Brooklyn and the world is your oyster and you can spend a Saturday in Chelsea and a Sunday in the Lower East Side and you know pop into some openings on the Upper East Side on a Thursday and if you go to every opening for two or three months you have a really solid understanding of what the art world looks like and what you know different trends there are and I think once you understand that you can make educated decisions for yourself about what appeals to you and what you would want to live with and where you would want to put your money. Okay, so those are two pieces of advice. Okay. I need a third. Um, <laughs> well, uh, another piece of advice, I think, is to find, and, you know, you mentioned maybe someone wouldn't be walking into Gagosian, but I think you should see things at every price point because, um, you know, it's important to understand things even yeah. if they're out of your budget or whatever. Um, and museums are included in that too. But I think to find someone that, or to find a community that you can talk about art ideas with because... Um, 
a lot of art, especially conceptual art, you need a real context for and you need to have an understanding that might be greater than what you can come up with in your frame of reference and in Mm -hmm. your brain. So if it's like a friend that you love to look at art with or um, that, you know, there are different groups at different museums, different members groups, and some of them are a few hundred dollars a year to join, but you get benefits and some of them are much more than that and you get even more benefits, but you could join a group like that. Or if you find someone that works at a gallery, I mean, the one of the most joyful parts of my job is talking to clients about the art that they love, even if it's not stuff that they buy from me. I mean, I got into the business because I really like art. So Mm -hmm. I have clients that come uh, visit me every week and we talk about all the stuff we saw that week. And it's not always stuff that I could sell them or make money off of, but I still find that to be like very gratifying and it's useful for them because I obviously have it my own and it's how you establish yourself as an expert in the field as well. Of course, yeah. So I would say only buy things you love. See as much as you can so you can decide what it is that you love and understand why you love it. And find someone or a community that you can talk through things with. I don't think it should be a solitary activity buying art. Okay, I love that. Right. I feel like those are three really good concrete pieces of advice for people. Excellent. Nice. Um, okay, so how quickly are you able to tell if an artist's work is going to sell? If you look at a piece of artwork. Um, okay, well, I can pretty, I think I could pretty quickly tell you if something will like appeal to a great number of people and if priced appropriately if it would sell well. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is different than being able to tell if something has enduring artistic value. Um, I think it's different than looking at something and telling you if it um, represents an idea that transcends um, you know art that had been made before it and ideas had been represented before it. Those are all separate things to me. I think a lot of times what is dictated, what is purchased in galleries and, you know, kind of how the way the market evolves doesn't necessarily collide with or coincide with um, what will be in art history textbooks in 30 years or 40 years. Okay. Yeah. I, I can I tell you both, but they're not the same thing. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think one thing that's very interesting about what you do is just the concept of monetizing beauty. Because on sort of this really theoretical level, human beings since the beginning of time have tried to create beautiful objects Mm -hmm. and beautiful works of art, and we all are gravitating toward pretty things. Um, And because those pretty things are scarce, they have a dollar value assigned to them. Yeah. Can you just speak a little bit to this, of course, you know, concept? I mean, it's all... It's a little like dystopic, um, depending on how you look at it. But what I will say about the gallery world is that, um, you know, it's sort of this, it's a little bit arbitrary, these prices that we've all decided things should cost. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's contrived in its own way. And it's in, in, on the one hand, it's, you know, it's a shame that Picasso's cost what they cost because I would love one and everyone should be able to live with that kind of beauty. It's so unfortunate. But on the my other hand, my kids do a pretty good picture. Right? They do a pretty good cubist uh, painting. Oh, that's with their eyes face right now. That, yeah. with all, both eyes on one side of the face. I think so it was Picasso who said. We can talk later. Yeah, well, I know exactly. <laughs> Please, um, child labor. But I think it was Picasso who said that he spent his entire life learning how to paint as he could naturally when he was three or whatever. Yeah. And I, I love that sentiment. But 
Yeah, it's really annoying that this arbitrary system has been um, imposed and dictates the price of what these beautiful things cost. But at the same time, you have to think that the money that's generated by those sales um, allows people like my boss, Larry, to put on exhibitions and show works of artists and realize their artistic dreams. And anyone who can afford to get to New York or get to any of the galleries um, in any of the cities where Larry does business gets to see those shows for free and gets to make the artistic dreams of these artists a reality. And as we've seen over and over throughout history, artists are consistently at the forefront of progress and um, they're consistently the most politically progressive people in a society. They consistently move into neighborhoods that 10 years later have real estate booms. They're always at the forefront of everything. So well, they're visionaries, right? They're, they're absolutely visionaries. Yeah, they're though. the most yeah. innovative people in the world. And to me, that's the most glamorous part about the art world. It's not the party. We all know a million rich people who go to a jillion parties a week. That is glamour in its own way. And, you know, going to fancy dinners and eating caviar and whatever, that is glamour too. But to me, true glamour is knowing people who are so free in their lives um, and so untethered by any kind of social norms that they can really push the envelope and live, you know, on the edge the way artists do. And someone like Larry who, you know, creates art markets and values art and puts a number on it also makes possible the livelihoods of these people who are, you know, the greatest resistors of our time. And it makes possible the concept of a city like New York or Los Angeles or London or any of the yeah. big world cities where it's vibrant because there is art and because Absolutely. there's conversation and because there are ideas. And people think differently from one another. Yeah. You know? And uh, I think that's an important contribution that is often overlooked. But you can go to Gagosian and see museum quality shows any day of the week in most major cities in Western Europe and in America and LA and New York. And I don't know, I think that's such a gift. Absolutely. Who are some of your favorite living artists? And I know you love the artists that you work directly with. Of course, yes. Um, I, I love Cindy Sherman, who is a living female photographer. Um, I love Barbara Kruger, who's another living female artist. Um, I love my husband's an artist and I love him. Yeah, he's a good one. Have to mention him. Um, but I <laughs> that was a nice uh, <laughs> that was a that was a nice way to sort of keep your marriage and home life right. happy, right? I really it's funny though because I don't I like to keep our professional lives separate, but I knew my husband's art before I knew him and I loved it. So I can honestly say when I um, was studying abroad my mom came to visit me and I took her to a museum specifically to see a piece of art that he made that was in the museum before I ever met him so I I can honestly say I like his work she would she would corroborate the story but I've been recently really interested in the art of particularly feminist artists who were active beginning in the 70s whose work is still around and many of them have been overlooked and are just now starting to kind of get their, I mean, the two artists I just named are very famous, widely known women artists, but um, for many artists of that genre, as we mentioned, they um, have historically been overlooked and are now kind of having their moment in museums. And I really hope and believe that that will endure because there 
are more women in positions of power in the art world and it seems that there's a lot of attention in the media um, towards more and more women being in power in the art world which of course will mean the promotion of women artists which is wonderful yeah that's amazing I hope okay let's switch gears for a second and I want to talk about another form of art which is fashion and I know that you who doesn't want to talk about fashion all day um I know that you work in the visual arts but you happen to be a total fashionista and for my (laughs) podcast listeners who can't see Sarah Hoover in person in the flesh she is gorgeous stunning and always dressed in the most chic interesting innovative you know really well put together pieces so tell us a little bit about see me on my good days (laughs) (laughs) well I, i mean i've never not seen you on one of those days um tell us a little bit about some of your um favorite current fashion trends and what you're wearing these days so i am a firm believer that no one should be um, be a slave to trends. I think that you have to yeah. dress, right? It's so Preach. silly. And it's just like, I don't know. It's just advertising. It's just a way for certain things to be marketed to you. And I think you should dress in, first of all, what you feel good in. It's the only thing that matters because if you are confident and you feel good about yourself, you'll be the most beautiful, articulate person in any room. Um, but I also think you have to know kind of like what's right for your body I mean there are some trends that would never work for me and I'm not even going to go there and I think that you have to sort of you know as we all know it's been said a million times that the way you dress can be such a nice way to project who you are and the ethics that you represent or the things that are important to you so um I think you kind of have to honor that and like you know if you as my friend Nellie always says who I think that you will um be speaking with in a few weeks she loves glitter eyeshadow and you know what that probably hasn't been a trend since the 90s and it may never become a trend again but she wears it every day and i think like more power to her she looks beautiful when she has it on and just trends don't matter if you can be confident and rock something that you love that's true fashion to me that's style you know it's not about if you copy stuff in a magazine yeah, I like that. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it okay. does. And I really like it. It actually answered a better question than the one I asked. So okay. thanks for that. Great. Got it all. Um, <laughs> but I really like that because sometimes I think people feel a little oppressed by having to dress a certain way or it's this new season, so they have to get this new item. Um, but similar to visual arts and similar to what you do at Gagosian Gallery, what I think is really cool about these beautiful objects around us is just finding what speaks to you. Definitely. Whether it's a painting on your wall, a sculpture in your living room, something you admire afar in a museum, or what you're putting on your body. Yeah. You just want to like it and gravitate toward it and have it reflect a little bit of your self-identity. Absolutely. Like I go into the office and there are all these amazing, badass, powerful alt world women who wear their like power suits. And I wish I could look that cool, but that's just not who I am. Like, I love my girly outfits and, you know, my flower prints and all of that. But I have finally found that wearing the things that I love that make me who I am 
And by the way, I feel like I've been dressing the same since I was in high school and there's been absolutely no evolution and it's probably <laughs> really unsophisticated, but it makes me happy. And then I don't have to think about what I'm wearing because I just know that I'm happy with it and I can focus on the other stuff that really matters, you know? Yeah, I completely agree with that. So have there ever been any moments in your career as an art expert, an artist liaison, when you felt that this was really challenging or you kind of were not sure that this was all going to work out for you? I mean, yeah, I have imposter syndrome. I think it like every day. I think that... Tell us about <laughs> that because I know what that is, but some people may yeah. not have heard of this very fascinating entity, imposter syndrome. I don't know if I'm going to give you like the clinical correct uh, definition of it, but to me, Hopefully I Hopefully just... people are not listening to this in lieu of reading the exactly. DSM-4 yeah, or whatever. Exactly. Precisely. <laughs> like, Google it before you trust me. But what I mean to say is that, you know, every day I wake up and I think, oh, this is so crazy. My alarm's going off, but I'm still 21. What am I doing getting up and going to a real job? Oh, I should be still be in college. And I get there and it's like, I have this huge to-do list and I have an incredible assistant and I work with a team of people and... I still feel like, um, you know, there should be someone telling me what to do and like how to do things right. And the fact that I have to make sorts of decisions for myself that affect other people's lives and, you know, this microeconomy that I'm in and shocks me every single day. But I feel that if you, um, you know, I worked really hard, I studied as hard as I could, I do what I'm supposed to do in my office. I stay current. I read everything I can. I see all the shows I can. I talk to all the people I can. I listen to everyone. I don't think that, um, I, I'm not, uh, I don't know how best to say this without sounding kind of silly, but I don't think that I'm smarter than anyone. I feel like everyone I come across, there's something to be learned from them. And I feel like if you work really hard and you come at any job uh, with a little, you know, with an ounce of being humble, um, you're bound to trust, if you trust your instincts, make good decisions. And sometimes that's all I have and I just have to rely on that. I just have to rely on trusting my instincts and making decisions that I think are right. And fortunately, I'm not a doctor, so it's not, whatever decision I make is not... I think it's so similar. Yeah, I mean, sure. I really think that, of course, you have to have some raw skills to do any profession well. But I really think that there's a huge effort dependence in all of this stuff. Like people who try hard and work hard and, you know, immerse themselves in what they do, those are the people who end up succeeding. There were, Absolutely. There were probably 20,000 people at, at, at the grad school level when you were at Columbia submitting your resume to art galleries who right. wanted, who would die for a job that you got. And, you know, the thing that made you stand out was what? What? What do you think it was? What? How do you think you got? How do you think you got to be the diamond in the rough? Well, um, I had a sort of academic background, which is not necessary to work in a gallery. Um, I don't use the skill set that I developed as an undergraduate and a graduate student every day, certainly. But I had um, been an intern at the Metropolitan Museum, which is like a very rigorous intern program that you have to apply for, and it's a paid internship, and it's like. Um, you know, kind of a very coveted art world internship. Um, and I had always thought that I would work in museums. So I had considered going on to have a PhD, which is kind of a prerequisite for very academic art world work. And um, 
I speak two languages, which I think was very helpful. What's your I, second language? French. Oh, I have okay. that um, academic background. And I, you know, I had published papers before I applied for my job, which is almost, it's not super useful in my day-to-day work, but there does come a moment where I'm like really glad I had that experience of being able to write well, where I have to, you know, knock off a press release for an artist or something. And it's not a huge challenge for me, where I'm writing a proposal for a client who's particularly old fashioned and wants something handwritten, which, you know, is kind of rare. Um... So I think that was all really helpful, and I don't know, I remember when I was interning at the Met, they were hiring someone one day, and they were like, I overheard two of my bosses talking, and they were like, well, this girl, she knows her way around the museum, and this girl's never worked here before, and the museum's, you know, two million square feet, so they hired the person who knew their way around, which is kind of silly, but I felt like was some sort of metaphor for just totally. like being really familiar and immersing yourself in you know, the culture of the job that you want. Yeah. And I'm sure there were a jillion other people. I'm, I, I think luck plays a part in everything. And I am, um, you know, very lucky that I got to live in New York city and, you know, my parents helped me pay the bills when I couldn't and that I was even in the right place at the right time. It's like half the battle, but I went, you know, I, I, it wouldn't have happened had I not like shown up at the gallery and been there and been polite and been nice to people, which I think is also so important being nice to everybody. Yeah. I like that for success. Don't you think? I think it's important. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Okay. I mean, yeah, that's an amazing (laughs) answer. Now I have a couple of more fun questions. Great. Tell us what we would immediately notice if we walked into your home. Um, Okay. I think you would be surprised because I have kind of old-fashioned taste in decor and a lot of people have maybe seen my husband's art studio on the internet and I really like contemporary art but I love like silk curtains and all this old-fashioned stuff so I think you would kind of be like wait this makes no sense she (laughs) sells art by living artists but like she lives like it's the Belle Epoque or something (laughs) Um, so I think that would be surprising I also though detest clutter and I don't have a lot of stuff. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You have to teach me that trick. Well, I think it's more difficult when you have five children. Probably. <laughs> yes. If there's like, you know, here, yeah. you need a certain it's amount of stuff. five mini ecosystems. Exactly. But so far, I'm doing really well with keeping things like very pared down. And I don't have minimal taste. Like, I'm a full-on maximalist. But I, I just don't need extras of anything. I'm not a collector of like any sort of thing other than things that hang on the wall so it's pretty easy for me even in my closet I'm like I'm not you know I'm not a slave to consuming I'm not a huge consumer so I feel like you need like the perfect version of everything but you don't need four of everything I like that that's that's good advice especially for a New York City totally it's a little bit more compact and then you take care of it and you like save your money and you buy the right things that will last and you make sure that they're perfect and they actually fit even if it's on sale and it doesn't fit you still don't buy it you know you (laughs) play by all those rules so many words of wisdom here okay what's your favorite New York City museum well Architecturally, the Guggenheim. I think that is the most... So cool. Incredible building. It's so visionary. The fact that it's just on the park and we all take it for granted and it's here, it's so unbelievable. Um, In spirit, I love the new museum, which was founded by a woman in the 70s after she had been fired from... I think it was from the Guggenheim. Um, And she was like, I'm going to go start something new where I can, you know, put 
works of art that seem crazy and ahead of their time and uh, be accepted for it. And she started the new museum, so I love the spirit of that. Um, I love, I mean, MoMA's collection is obviously, I could like keep going and going. I'm just going <laughs> to list them all. And then another, a real hidden gem to me is the Noguchi Museum in Long Island City, which I discovered fairly recently. Oh, cool. It's so beautiful. It was the former studio of the artist Asamo Noguchi, and it has like a beautiful outdoor Japanese garden. It's really special. Okay, amazing. So I feel like that's a punch list for anyone who's thinking about visiting New York Museums. So... To close, as a thank you for participating, we would love to gift you any product from Scientific Beauty. Yay! So I wanted to ask you if there's anything that you have your eye on or anything that Well, I have to try in. the BB cream because it's probably the one product I ha- don't already own. <laughs> and I hear such amazing things about it from Brett Heyman, who spoke on your podcast, I believe, last week. Um, and we were talking about all of the products which we're both huge fans of. And she was like, you haven't tried the BB cream? That's it's nice. really good. Yeah. It's an SPF 45 too. And, Perfect. And a tinted moisturizer with a BB cream. And it has this proprietary pigment that blends to any skin tone. Amazing. Which is so cool. Yeah. Like, you know, we have different complexions and we can both, both use it. Work with both of us. Really so cool. you actually are a magician. I strive to be at my work, but you really are. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, um, and then I wanted to ask you, how do you define beauty? Um, I think that the most beautiful people in the world are confident and kind and there's like no getting around that for me. I have seen incredibly textbook beautiful people who are rendered terrible looking to me by their attitude or um, their lack of confidence and I feel like truly kind people are are confident people you know if you um if you're if you're nice to people it's generally because you have good self-esteem and you know you you know it's the right thing to treat people well and I just think that's the most important to walk into a room and to treat people with grace and to hold your head up high um and feel empowered about who you are is so beautiful to me and you know like, there are things about myself that I don't love. Like, I was complaining to you earlier, since I had a baby, I have so much hair that has a totally different texture. And I was, you know, complaining to my husband recently, saying, oh my god, I have curly hair, and I hate curly hair, and blah, 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 and it makes me feel so ugly. But then I, like, look at pictures of other women that have curly hair, and they look beautiful. And it's like, it's not about the hair. It's about how you hold your head up and how you, um, you know, manage yourself and how empowered you feel with whatever your characteristics are, which is not to say that people shouldn't come have plastic surgery if they want it. That's an empowered decision as well. But no, I just think feeling think strong that, yeah. about, you know, you, you know, making the decision to change how something, something about yourself is also an empowered decision and people should make that for themselves. But no matter how much you don't like something about yourself, knowing that real beauty is beauty of spirit is essential. I totally agree with you. And sometimes people don't understand that how, as a plastic surgeon, I can have such an ephemeral definition of beauty. But I think you're totally right. It's about how you feel and how you treat others and what you're putting into the world. And we all make personal decisions about how we're going to present ourselves to the world of course. what what heel height we're going to wear or what color lipstick or if yeah. we're going to get Invisalign or if we're going to get Botox or mm-hmm. you know we all make little decisions but I think that that's not what beauty is that's sort of 
wanting to put your best face into the world and that and that's a little bit of a different thing and I I really like how you phrased it I thought it was awesome and then I wanted to ask you you know you are a boss in your field because (laughs) um you have established yourself as this major entity in the art world in Mm -hmm. a short time at a young age and I wanted to ask you what being a boss means to you well I think it's kind of the same as being beautiful I feel like being a boss is being kind to people who work for you and um, and treating everyone with respect I think it's really important I see often in my fields people in positions of power who step on people beneath them rather than helping them out and I don't think that makes you seem more important or more of a boss I think it makes you seem makes one seem you know small and ineffective Um, I think truly powerful people lift everybody up and being confident in the decision, the business decisions that you make and knowing to trust your instincts and to trust your, um, you know, the hard work that you put in and to trust your knowledge base and use that to make informed decisions. Um, I, I think those two things together make you a boss and they can't, you can't be good at one without the other. Amazing. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you for having me. This so was fun. so fun and such a privilege. And I can't wait to hear about all the amazing things you're going to do next.